John, 1 John, chapter 2, beginning at verse 28. He has been talking to his readers about their assurance of faith, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Emphasize it. He's been talking and warning them about the Antichrist, that they have an anointing that you've received. We looked at that passage a little bit last week. And then he begins, And now, little children, abide in him, that is in Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Well, we have been working through the catechism, and the catechism has been working through the Apostles' Creed. We began by looking at God the Father, who is creator of heaven and earth. And that's the first image that they deal with with God. He is our Father. Very appropriate to re be reminded about that on, the, uh, on Father's Day. And then we moved over to his Son, Jesus Christ, who is and, and who has several titles. We've looked at one of them. That is, he is Savior. That is, he is a Redeemer. He is the one who purchased us by his own life and death and resurrection so that we may indeed be his, bought with a price, even by his own blood. And then we move to look at him as the Christ. That is a title. That's not his last name. He was Jesus our Joseph or Jesus of Nazareth. But that title Christ means the three offices he fulfills. And he is the only person who has fulfilled those three offices together. There's the office of the chief prophet by which he is our teacher and by which he speaks to us the word of God. He is the office of the high priest. There are a lot of different priests, but he is the one who is above all priests. He is our intermediator. He's the one who not only lived, but died for us, sacrificed himself. He was the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world for on our behalf. And he is also the eternal king. That is, he is the ruler. And it's not only for we who are Christians, but that's for the whole world. He is the prophet for all people, whether or not they listen to him. He is a high priest for all people, whether or not they accept and they understand the sacrifice or whether or not it was efficacious for them. He is a king. We looked at uh, a great event where two presidents of warring countries sat down and began talks. And all the press was going, yeah, wow, or boo, either one, take your pick. It depends on what channel you want to listen to. And I kept reminding myself, hold it, this is nothing. I know the one who knows all nations and guides all nations and puts into power all presidents and all leaders. He's the one who's really in control. Tell that to your congressman. <laughs> okay? And that's who he is. And then, this, then they go on in this Lord's Day 13 to two more titles, which I hope we get through today, but we may not. 
That's, I'm just giving you a foretaste and a forewarning. 13, question 33. Why is he called God's only begotten son, since we also are the children of God? That's a good question, because that is one of his titles, only begotten son. And there are several scriptures that I put down for you, and I purposely did not write the scriptures into the outline. I want you to be Bereans, okay? Bereans are the ones who went home and they studied on their own the scriptures. So you go back to your own Bible with your own paper, with your own little pen or pencil, and you underline, write, think about doing it instead of having somebody spoon feed it to you. The only people to whom you spoon feed food are babies. When you become a child and an adult, you feed yourself. Well, hopefully you do. It's when you become a real old person, they feed you again. But that, that's a different situation. Uh, the passage I want to look at is from Luke. And it's uh, Luke 1. Again, Mary is doing her normal chores and the angel Gabriel was sent from God to her and he says in verse 30, do not be afraid Mary for you have found favor with God. God is gracious to you and behold you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Again that first title. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Most High is a way, another term for God. He will be called the Son of God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, so he'd be the son of David as well as the son of God. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. You notice... Again, those titles all put together in one passage. So the confession begins by talking about, well, why is he called God's only begotten son? Well, he's only begotten son because of what those words mean. He's the only. He's unique. Not in the way in which we like to use that word unique. Why, this is a unique day. Well, it is in one sense, or this was a unique event that I've had three or four times. Oh, no, no, no. Unique means one of a kind. It can only be one of a kind. It may be rare, but it's not unique. And he is the only son, and he's been set apart to a singular relationship with the God the Father. Only he shares this kind of relationship. He has been begotten, not made. And I took that term from the Nicene Creed that we like to use here. And I think it's in, your, in the copy I gave to you, that section. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. That means before there was anything, he was begotten. Begotten of God before all ages. I use a different version, God of God, light of light, true God of true God. Begotten, not made, of the same essence as a father. And here's where the Nicene Creed has a little superiority because they were fighting this battle about who is Jesus and how does he relate to the father. Is he simply a, the first of all creation? Was he simply the one who emanated from God, and that's why I have a little problem with the God from God, light from light, because that sounds like emanation. The God of God, light of light, is there equal. One didn't come from the other, they were together. But they were fighting that battle, and so they were very particular to bring that out in the Nicene Creed. He is the only begotten, now, when we talk about begotten, and if you know your King James Version, you know the genealogy. David begot Solomon, Solomon begot Rehoboam, 
and we go through all those begottens, and about three verses in, we say, what is this? Why am I even thinking about it? Other than to realize this is a lineage, and it is a way in which we describe uh, the uh, purity of a line, that you did come from somebody. And we think of that. We have, Peg and I have four children who are begotten. They come from us. They're natural children. But the word begotten in this sense, and especially when it's combined with the word not made, means they, he was not generated from God, but he is in a relationship with God. And that's also part of what those genealogies are saying. It's not that they merely came, but they related to the Father. And some of the history of the Old Testament brings this out. When it talks about a king and how he operated. Well, King Asa did what was right in the light of God. He was not like his father. And, and it shows the difference that there is. Or he did, this king did the same thing his father did, but sometimes even worse. He was begotten. It was his gene, their genes, and he was only working with them, and he didn't do a real good job, at least before the sight of God. This, the uh, catechism also goes on and says in the answer, because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. Again, I'm trying to explain that. And that word eternal helps you understand that word begotten. Because if he is eternal, he could not be made. He is not only unlimited, he is outside of time, he is not created. And so putting those together, you get the idea of who is the natural son of God. So we're dealing with a unique relationship between the father and the son. And that shows part of it as the uh, preciousness of the son. As the verse of Hebrews 1 says, uh, in the last days God has spoken to us by a son who he appointed the heir of all things. He is the radiance of the glory of God and he is the exact representation or the exact imprint of his nation, nature. You see Jesus, you see the Father. With, uh, with our natural children, you look at them and you'll see parts of Peg and parts of me. Some of them look more like one than the other, but you'll see parts. Or you can go back a couple generations. You look at my grandfather's or her grandfather's, and you look and say, hey, that looks a whole lot like, and you, you see that resemblance. That's been passed on. The son has an imperfection, in, in perfection about the father. You see Jesus, you see perfectly what the father is like. And again, Mount, Mount of Transfiguration is one of those signs that that's what happened. He changes from the inside out and they see the glory of God that is within him and that would, could shine through him and that now shines through him in his own time. And therefore, he has the Father's, what I call the divine genetic makeup. He has the same attributes. If you're going to talk about, we've been going through on Wednesday night, knowledge of the holy and the attributes of God. And one of the things I've, I've asked the, the uh, people who are there every time is, how does this attribute appear in Jesus? Because I want to bring home the, the point that, yeah, we talk about God the Father and his immutability. How does that show itself in Jesus? Because he will show that same immutability. And he will show all those characteristics. So he, is that, he has that divine uh, genetic makeup. And therefore, he is to be worshipped. This word, only begotten, also helps you to understand Colossians 1. Where you get to a place where Paul is talking to that congregation who is facing some very serious heresies and when he is describing the person of Christ he says this verse 15 
verse, chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Well, it's springtime. You're not only going to get flowers and mosquitoes and wasps, but you're going to get Jehovah's Witnesses coming out. And the first thing they will tell you is, look, Paul said he was the firstborn of all creation. And you're going, what do we do? What do we say when he's a, we, you have a firstborn? Well, we have a daughter who is our firstborn. And we say, is Jesus then a created being? Yeah, maybe the top of all created being, the, the demigod, the semi-god, the one who is above all else, but he's not fully God. And then you begin to realize what, he, what Paul means by firstborn. He, it's, a, it's a term very much like he's the only natural child, the eternal natural child. That is, it's not a description of where he came from. It's a description of his position. The firstborn was the one who had all the rights and who was expected to take over for the father when he died, who was given a double portion of the inheritance. So from the second down to the 20th born, they all go, oh man, we only get the leftovers. But the firstborn was the one who is expected to rule. I mean, this is the strange part about the, New Test the Old Testament where the firstborn is not always in that way. You have... Jacob, who makes a coat for Joseph, the 11th born, a coat of many colors, which meant that he was going to inherit and the leadership of the family. What do you think that did to the firstborn? Uh, was it Judah? They go, oh, are, you, are you kidding me, Dad? This is Reuben, thank you. I got to remember, it's like a sandwich. <laughs> are you kidding me, Dad? You're going to give it to that son? I'm the one who deserves it. Well, Jesus is the one who is the heir. Same genetic makeup. Equality in divinity, glory, and honor. And he is the one who is the only natural child. And he's loved by the Father with an eternal love. A different eternal love than the eternal love that God has for us. But it is a love. Therefore, well, how, do you th how do you think he was able to face the temptation in the wilderness? He'd been baptized in the Jordan. The Spirit had come upon him. That possibly could have been enough. But he hears his father say, this is my beloved son, my beloved son, or my son, the beloved. In him I am well pleased. Him I love like nobody else. And so he can say to the enemy, oh, thus says my father, you don't test him. And he goes through that. How do you think he faced the trials of the cross? He had gone through the transfiguration and the father again had spoken to him. This is my son, my beloved. And to the disciples, he said, listen to him. Well, Jesus said, you know, if you heard that, and your father, your natural father said, you all have to listen to him. That kind of, oh, yes. Not in a prideful way, but in a way of saying, that's who I am. His resurrection, going through the cross, it's because he knew his father loved him. He would accept the sacrifice and then he would raise him from the dead. That's being the only natural child of God. We, on the other hand, are the children of God by adoption. Remember, that's how the catechism says it. We are children of God by adoption through grace for Christ's sake. And... This has a lot of meaning for us, for we not only have four natural children, we have three adopted children. Now, I studied the idea and the teaching of adoption as I went through seminary and early on in my ministry, as I read through Charles Hodge and Burkhoff and all the 
names that are not familiar to you. But it wasn't until we had adopted children that this, this was driven home to me by God. Because there's one thing to have a natural child. There's another thing to have an adopted child. And adoption in the biblical categories as well as the New Testament side, side, uh, times, very close to what we do today. The word is there. I put it in your, your uh, paper. Heothesis, that means to be transferred from one family into another. Adoption, we normally look at as adopting a child, sometimes an infant, sometimes an elementary, sometimes even a high school. But adoption in the New Testament time could be a person at any age. I mean, you could be 86 years old and someone could adopt you. And so your father is younger than you are. Hmm. That's an interesting genealogical line, isn't it? But you, you could adopt at any time anybody that you wanted. And it was always a father who adopted because mothers uh, did not have that kind of legal right. They may adopt a child because they have no children and they need somebody to take over the family business. They may adopt a child because the child they have is a rotten, good, no, rotten, no good scoundrel. And they would leave the family business to them because you know it would be lost. You may adopt a child because you only have daughters. And daughters had no legal rights, so they couldn't take over the business. They couldn't take over the family. They couldn't, watch, they couldn't even watch over themselves. Therefore, they had to have a brother. Or you could just simply adopt a child because you like the person. And you thought man, it would be worthwhile for them to have my name and be in my family. Um, and what you did is you took them from outside of your household and you brought them into the family. The bringing into the family is a singular act. Just like when we adopted our children, though it was time of preparation, there came a time when they set the court date they had us come down to, it was in Manhattan, New York, hon? When we, yeah, it was a court of, in Manhattan. You came into the judge's chambers. And I was expecting this bench with the judge sitting up there and her looking very official. It was her chambers. We sat around a conference table. I said, I've been at conference tables. Let's do something special. No. But it was where they asked the questions. Do you want to adopt these children? Our children happened to be old enough for them to ask, do you want to be adopted? Yeah, they were what? Uh, they were about nine, nine, eight, and seven, somewhere in that line. And I'm going, these kids don't know anything. What are you talking about? Then they, they all said yes. But the singular act was when she signed the document and she said, they're now yours. With that, she didn't, even, she didn't even hit a gavel. I was waiting for the sound of the gavel. Come on, let's make it look like Perry Mason. Come on. Matlock. Real courtroom. No, just, but as soon as her signature was on that document, it was official. And they transferred from their parents to us. We loved them. It was a little different process of love because we had had them anywhere from four months to about four weeks. And so they grew up with us and we, we knew who they were. And we, we, we came to the point where they asked, if you're going to have another foster child, you have to go toward adoption. I said, yeah, we'll do it. Uh, that was a, a no-brainer. Uh, we love them as, not as a natural child, but as someone whom we were bringing into the family. You see, you know, natural children have a different kind of love. And especially a different kind of love between the mother and the father. A couple of you are caring children. You feel the bumps, the squirms, the hiccups. They wake you up at 3 a.m. to go to the bathroom, or that you have to go to the bathroom. And you go, oh, come on, dude. <laughs> Are you kidding me? 
you have been nurturing them. They have been conceived within you, but they are being knit together in your womb. And it changes you as a mother because of the changes that happen in your body. But there is this, what, this kind of intimate love between you and the child. The Greeks had a word for it. The fourth word of love is storge. That's mother's love. Fathers don't have that. If ever comes to the point where fathers bear children, we will have it. I'm glad I'm past that possibility. <laughs> but storge is a love that a mother has for her. It's a natural, normal love. It's also the love that's produced between a child and the mother. That's why big, bulky football people say, Hi, Mom. See, have you ever seen them say, Hi, Dad. Or, Hi, Dad. They don't. There's that kind of, that's the natural kind of love. Dads, we have to work at it. Our, our ability to learn to love our children like that is because we play games with them. It's because we teach them. It's because we're with them. They go with us for car rides. They go with us and they're, they're watching us as we do things. They're around us. It's because we change dirty diapers. And you get to see the messiness of life. And it's many times for Father in the messiness of life that you build that bond with your child. You catch the comparison between the Father and us adopted children. It's in the messiness of our lives that He comes and works. And we begin to love Him as he already loves us. It's a legal transaction. When the judge declared that the foster children were ours, they were ours. And no one, the parents could not come back and say, oh, sorry, we, we don't want to do this. We want them back. And the, the judge would say, I'm sorry. They are now the Gerhardts. And in fact, part of that legal transaction was they were given a new name. Their old name, Cridlin, was taken away and they were given the name Gerhards. They also, particularly with the two, or two of them, were given a new first name. One of them's name fit in with the Gerhardt family. I remember that's what you're supposed to do with adopted children. They fit in with your family. The other two didn't. One was, uh, yeah, both of them. Won. And one of them wanted to pick their own name. <laughs> and she came out and said, I want to be called Flower. <laughs> and we go, is this the 70s? <laughs> Are we hippies? Does this sound like that? And we said, no, your name's not going to be Flower. I think one of them wanted to have the same name as an older brother. And we said, no, you can't do that. That's just confusing. <laughs> so they were given new names. They were, they became part of the family. They were brought out of one into another. This helps you understand Colossians 1, 13 or 14. Where it says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is the way I like to picture that verse. You are all over here are the domain of darkness. That's the nice part about the teacher. I can tell you whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> This is the kingdom of the beloved son. And this is what happens in adoption. For those whom he adopts, he takes out of the domain of darkness and he instantaneously transforms you. How come you're sitting over here? <laughs> we, ought to, we ought to all be on one side, right? But he takes you from the domain of darkness and he puts you into the kingdom of his son. 
That is an instantaneous transformation. It brings you into his family. And notice the use of the words there. You are a domain. That is a limited area. This is the kingdom. The kingdom of God is over all things. So you have been in a domain, a limited part of the whole kingdom. And it's a domain of the enemy, a domain of darkness, which is the enemy or your own blindness or your own hatred, your own antithesis to God. And now you've been brought into the kingdom of God with all of the pleasures, with all of the, re the uh, responsibilities, with all of the privileges of being in the kingdom of God. Instantaneous, just like that. And that's what happens with adoption. Genetically, we are not like, gen genetically, our adopted children are not like us. You know, I, I think I've told you before, I have a son who says to us, they're your genes, we're only trying to work with them. They can't even say that because they're not even our genes. And they have the background of their parents. One of the things you learn about adopted children is you learn as much as you can about their parents. Their, the illnesses of their family, the way in which you operate. We had the privilege of getting to know their parents because they were foster children and periodically they, they would meet their, their, their real parents, their natural parents. And we got to see, and we got to see a little bit of what it may be like when they grow up. In fact, when one or two of them speak, I can hear their mother's voice. Now, they haven't heard their mother's voice very often, but it's just there. That's the genetic makeup. They have issues that come out of the genes of their parents. But now they're coming in and having to learn how to live in this brand new situation, circumstance, in a different family, a different makeup. Um, new name, new birth certificate. The last part is they are guaranteed to be a part of the family. Because one of the things the judge says to us is you may in no way ever negate this adoption. They are yours, just like your natural children. You have to treat them like your natural children. You have to give them everything you give your natural children. They are open to the same inheritance that your natural children have, a buck fifty. She didn't say that, I did. But they are guaranteed, and there is a down payment that comes with that, just as we have a down payment. Ephesians 1, 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You have been incorporated into Christ and you cannot be unincorporated from him. That's the security that adopted children need. I cannot lose what God has given to me. That's the first thing. You're brought into the family. And then you are building into the family. And this is the process. You learn how to live that new identity. You are for, afforded all of the benefits. The same upbringing that Peg and I gave to our children, we give to them. We begin, and we again, we had the, the luxury and the beauty of having them since they were very small, but they continued to be disciplined, nurtured, trained, instructed, fed, clothed, just like our other children. They discovered the same kind of compassion and choice and love when we went on vacation, we couldn't leave him with a vet and go out with him. We had to take him with us. They had to, they had to be a part of everything that we did. That they uh, enjoyed everything we had and the security of our house. 
But here comes a difficult issue. And it's the same issue you and I face as adopted children of God. There's always this question. Do they really love me? Does God really love me? And Christians early on wrestle with that. And sometimes, even after we've settled it, we re-wrestle with it because of something that happens. You didn't treat me like you did the others. Do you really love me? Well, they have to come to the, the understanding, yes, we love you no matter what. And we are at work for your best interests, even if you don't see those best interests. And that is one of their toughest lessons. In fact, I think sometimes it kind of lives with them for the whole time. And even the guarantee of the Holy Spirit is something they wrestle with. How many times I've talked to somebody, they're not assured that they're in the family of God. And really what it is, does God love me? Look at what I just did. Does God love me? And one of the things that adopted parents have to show is, yeah, we love you, even though you did something despicable. Even though, and with one of them, we wrestle you to the ground and we hold you down so that you don't tear up the house. We have valuable things in this house, and if you keep it up this way, you may not be one of them. No. <laughs> you, they have to know that, you, that they are loved, even in the times of, that are tough. They start becoming like us, and boy, that's really scary. <laughs> I mean, it's bad enough when your natural children become like you. One of the things that really irk parents more than anything else is they do the same thing that you do, that you don't like, and you're trying to teach them not to do it. Um, sometimes they have the same interests. Sometimes they have the same mannerisms and styles and likenesses. Sometimes they don't, but they have to learn, no, we're not going to give you that food. That's not our kind of food. And sometimes God has to say to you, no, I'm not going to give you that. That's not what you need as a child of mine. This adoption, uh, being an adopted child. And they're also dealing with the mannerisms from which they came. It's amazing to me. That's, there, I, again, not only do I hear the voice of the mother in a couple of them, we see her mannerisms, and they only got to see her once in a while. But they spent nine months listening and dealing with who she is before they were born. Or up to nine months, I should say. But those mannerisms come out, and they have to be dealt with. No, you cannot act that way. You have to change. And if you don't change, there are repercussions. In some families of adoption, you have to look at the table and you say, yeah, we are going to eat around a table and we're going to talk. Because some adopted children have never ate at a table with the rest of the family. Some of them want their dessert before they have the main course. Say, so that's a good idea, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, we all like that once in a while, right? Turnaround meal. They're all of a sudden in a new relationship with others with whom they are not biologically related. All of a sudden they had four siblings. And they had aunts and uncles. And they had cousins. who They still have cousins. They had family they never knew before. Just as we as Christians have family members fellow members of the family, some of whom we've never met before, but are still family. You know that old phrase, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. But they are family. You're in this together, whether you like it or not. And so you learn how to deal with new family members. I have a brother-in-law. Actually, it's my only 
active brother-in-law. He is a card. He has a laugh that just makes you laugh. And the four and the three kids love to be around him because he makes them laugh. And he, he comes out with that chuckle and they're just, that, that's what they remember about Uncle Larry, his laugh. That's part of being family. And then you also have non-family members. Family is Christians. Non-family are non-Christians. And you deal with them in maybe a little bit different way, but in some similar ways that you have. You're shaped by being a vital part of the family. You join in conversations. And you're allowed to talk. You join around the table for a meal. And you hear the back and forth that goes on. And in our table, there is a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of humor and jokes simply because a couple of us are just wired that way. We see things that are funny that nobody else sees. And then everyone else thinks we are funny. Because we see them that way. We spend time together. We join in activities and services and help. We went to church together. All the same things that members of the family of God do. Conversation we have is not only around the table with bagels and meals and here in the sanctuary, but when we pray. We pray to God together as well as separately. We sit around a table at the end of the service. Well, technically we don't sit around the table, but we are at the table. And we remember that which brings us together. We are in worship and we praise together and we do things together. And we are shaped by those things. And if you fail to allow those things to happen, you are not shaped into the family image. You're shaped into some kind of other, some other kind of image. You have to accept being in the family. Not only to accept that God, that the parents love you, but you are part of this family. It's a thing that happens with adopted children, some to nth degree and some less than that. It's called RAD, Reactive Attachment Disorder. And that's because they're going back to their old domain. They're old parents and they're asking themselves, wonder what life would have been like if I had been here. Or life's not going real well because mom and dad are being tough. But if I were with my natural parents, then life would be beautiful. And I could call myself flower. <sighs> Whatever. And we... You, the danger is, as Christians, is we want to go back to the old domain. Here we are, we're transferred into the kingdom of God, and we want to jump back. It's called not dealing with sin. See, to jump over means that when you're over here, you're into what's called mortification. That is to put to death sin. And when you don't want to put it down, you're jumping back into the domain of darkness, of blindness of the enemy. And so we have, as even adopted children of the Father, we have this rad that's going on within us. That's Romans 7. The things I want to do are the things I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, these are the very things that I do do. And I get into do-do when I do-do them. Well, the last part was a translation, was a amplification of it. But that's what it's like to be an adopted child. Do you ever, ever find that in yourself? But the advantage we have over adopted children, uh, naturally adopted children, adopted children in, in life, is that we have somebody inside of us who is there to help us. Romans 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, 
but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, and you could say sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We have the spirit of adoption that reminds us when we're going through those periods of rad. No, 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 no. You don't belong over here. You belong over here. Who gives us the power to overcome what would draw us back to here to keep us there. And he is at work all the time within us, helping us to cry out, Abba, Father, Dad, Dearest. So that as adopted children, you go back, not like a natural child who knows those things intimately, but you go back and the Spirit helps you to say, yeah, He is my Heavenly Father. These are my parents. And I am called to obey them. And I am called to live with them. I am called to put up with their silliness. But that's what adopted children have to go through. That brings us to the third section blossoming toward the final goal, and this is our hope. Our hope is to be like our elder brother. I don't know about you, but I had a brother and a sister, a sister and a brother older than I. They really helped me get through high school, even though we never went to high school together. She was Val Victorian of her class. He was in the president, I don't know if he's president of student council or he was in there. And all the teachers who I ended up having loved them. And therefore, because they loved them, they loved me. And I got away with murder. <laughs> I mean, I, I knew I had a B to a B plus on a test before I ever took it. Oh, you're Ann and Peter's brother. Okay. You get that kind of free ride? Well, that's exactly the same thing that happens between the natural and the adopted children. The father looks at you and said, oh, oh yeah, I remember my natural son paid for you. You get a free ride. I love you, not because of you, but I love you because of him. And because of him, I'll give you everything. And I will make you to be like him. Romans 8, 29, where he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, what? To be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he may be the firstborn among all, all of creation, all, um, among, among many brothers. Again, that he would be the ruler. He conforms us to his image. You know how mightily God is at work to make you look like Jesus? You know how often we kind of dig in our heels and say, I want to be my own person. When all the time the best thing you could be is exactly like Jesus. Whom the Father loves with an eternal love. And through whom he loves you. Also, there's Second uh, Corinthians 4, 17 to 18. For he says, for this slight momentary... No, that's not the right one. I know it's in here. I saw it. I know. Third, third chapter. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, taken from one domain into the kingdom. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The more you look at your older brother, the more you gaze upon him, the more you become like him. One degree of glory to the next. You know, one degree, one degree, one degree, one degree, one degree, one degree. As you gaze upon your elder brother. And the second part of that is you are entitled to an inheritance. 
we are co-heirs with Christ. Just as I have to have those three adopted children written into our will, not only because the law says, but because I want them to be, you are written into the will. And you are co-heirs with Christ. Whatever he gets and has, you get. Except for the divine part, because you can't handle that. But that's who you are. That's what you have. And you have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, being guarded by the God's by God's power. We're going to leave it with that. I want you to see what's going on. There's only one natural son. You are adopted children. And you are trying to make the best of a transfer. But you are trying to make the best of the transfer. Not just to muddle through, but to become everything your elder brother is as a natural child. And that's what the catechism teaches us in, question, in that question. Let's pray. Father, thank you for real life that demonstrates real truth. Thank you for taking us out of the domain of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of your Son in whose light and life and all of life, all of life. Thank you for watching over us. Thank you for providing for us by your Spirit, empowering us to grow and to be who you have called us to be as adopted children. Help us, O oh Lord, when we face those times of wondering if you love us or whether we really want to be a part of this family, that your Spirit would guarantee and speak to us quite clearly that you have loved us from before the foundation of the world and in Christ you have brought us to yourself. For we look to you as the author and perfecter of our faith and the one who keeps us in your family. And we do it in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.